Hello and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy and we're your co-hosts on the show. This is a podcast that's a partnership between the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you are new to the show, this is a podcast where we talk about the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises and how to solve them. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at displacedatrescue.org and please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, or wherever you get your podcast. Today on Displaced, we're discussing a new model of philanthropy. In our day jobs, Grant and I think about innovation. How can we design and test new ways of working in humanitarian contexts? And the biggest blockage I think that we come across is the way in which philanthropy works. It's, it crushes the soul of innovation, it often doesn't allow for risk. And, and the topic today is actually how can you create a different form of finance that is a bit more like venture capital, able to take risks, make smart bets and invest in things with a genuine return. One way to think about grants and public sector funding from a financial perspective is that it actually is something that generates 100% losses. And what that really means is that grants and philanthropy and public sector is actually just giving away money. That's what it's meant there to do. On the opposite side of the spectrum is private investment that is looking to make a market return of a few percentage points. And so you have on one end of the spectrum grants that are 100% loss, and on the other side of the spectrum, for-profit market return-oriented investments that are looking to make kind of market returns. But there's a huge space in between, and new ways of thinking about philanthropic financing are trying to explore that spectrum and generate a different set of financial investments and innovations that really reshape the way we think about investment in delivering humanitarian assistance and in supporting the businesses and endeavors of uh, individuals and communities in those areas. So this episode is the one to listen to if you're curious about how you export a venture capitalist type model of funding into the humanitarian world. And we're incredibly pleased to have Alex Zwane here to discuss it, who is the chief executive officer of the Global Innovation Fund, which is a unique hybrid investment from multiple governments that invests in piloting, testing and scaling innovations that improve the worlds of the poorest people. And the Global Innovation Fund, GIF, is as interested in the early stage of generating ideas as well as cracking the crucial problem of going to scale. So I think it's important to say that there's two main differences in the way that GIF operates as compared to traditional humanitarian or development assistance. First, it solicits applications from organizations of all type private sector, public sector, for-profit, non-for-profit organizations, and will really make investments in any of them. And second, it provides a different set of financing, as I was kind of noting, depending on who they are and what they're doing. They provide grants, loans, loans convertible into debt, and equity investments. And in this interview, we talk about how that broader aperture on where you can make investments and the type of investments you can make are en- enable you to generate positive social outcomes that oftentimes have some sort of return. So let's talk to Alex Wani. Alex Wani, welcome to Displaced. Thank you. It's really fun to be here. So you're the chief executive of the Global Innovation Fund. And as I understand it, when you think about the funding that goes into development, you've got at one end of the spectrum grant funding that the governments do, the International Development Organization in the UK or USAID. At the other end of the spectrum, you might have people who give, not grants that governments do, but uh, lend money uh, at commercial rates. Uh, And those include commercial lenders and the major development finance institutions. And you try to sit somewhere in between, don't you? Trying to give grants and other kinds of investment, both to the public and private sector. So I'd love to know what problem do you think you're solving? Well, that's really quite interesting. Um, And I do agree with how you've characterized a lot of how we finance development assistance. Traditionally, we've had two financial tools at our disposal. USAID or the other and other governments of the industrialized countries make grants and they concentrate very hard on being very good partners for local governments in the countries where they are 
financing development. Those grants are deployed with no expectation of return, and this money is particularly valuable for humanitarian assistance, emergencies, and global public goods. Of course, the private sector companies in developing countries are a key engine for growth and development and jobs in those countries. All of us who care about development and improving the lives of poor people in countries where incomes are low need to think carefully about how to help the private sector grow and flourish and be an engine of inclusive growth, dignified, productive jobs for people. And, you know, as you said, one of the ways that you can do that is loan money to those companies or invest in those companies. And our governments in the U.S. or in the U.K., they do do that through what we call the development finance institutions. So in the U.K., that's something called CDC, uh, crown what? Yeah, Crown Under, Development. Yeah, it's, it's changed. Corporation. It's, it's changed with pseudo colonial name. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's we'll put call the it, old name and the new name up in the show notes. <laughs> let's call it CDC. And in the U.S., there's something called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation (OPEC), which maybe you've never heard of either of these entities, but they actually spend quite a bit of our aid budgets, and they do this by doing sort of private equity style investing in developing countries. And when I say private equity style investing, what that means is they are looking to spend relatively large amounts of money, willing to take some risk, but not a great deal of risk. And, you know, they expect their portfolio to earn close to commercial rates of return. So where does that leave us? And where does that put GIF? GIF, the Global Innovation Fund, we were set up by the government of the U.S. and the U.K. to be something in between those two things. So we receive grants ourselves from USAID and from DFID, that's the U.K. aid agency here, Um, but then we invest it sort of more like venture capital. That means we take earlier stage companies, younger companies, and we're willing to take on more risk in our portfolio as a whole. So we're filling what I, we sometimes call the pioneer gap, helping those companies that are really figuring out their business model still, they're still figuring out how to build the market that they want to sell into, and hopefully they can graduate from GIF's portfolio to OPIC or to CDC over time. I think one thing that's not obvious is why aid money at all should be used to make a return. One way to think about grants-based financing from an investor's you know, mindset is that it's actually there's just no return, right? You're not getting any of your money back. You're giving it all away. And I think a lot of people who believe in aid for redistribution purposes would actually, you know, actually really kind of abide by that. And so What's the best argument for why you would ever try to create financing in these places that generates returns? So I strongly believe that development assistance needs to continue to include grants-based financing that is spent um, with no expectation of a return. Many of our biggest development challenges will be solved by the public sector. And we need to think about how to help the local public sector figure out how to enhance its capacity to deliver services to people. Um, So I completely agree with you that just because we sometimes talk about and we get excited about the private sector, it doesn't, it it shouldn't, we shouldn't believe that there's no need for for grants-based aid financing. I do think it's interesting, though, to think about non-grant financing, precisely because we are really interested in the private sector as an engine for economic growth. At the highest level, one what people need are quality public services and productive jobs. And the private sector is going to be an engine of a lot of that job growth. And so thinking about how to grow the private sector to enhance the possibility for inclusive growth is part of our path towards everybody in the world having an equal chance for healthy, productive lives. So let me give you a little bit of an example, though, and say that, you know, one of the things you want to think about is like social return on investment in addition to financial return on investment um, when you're thinking about how to support the private sector. If we are going to use taxpayer dollars to help the private sector, 
we're subsidizing a firm. And so you need to be sure that you're getting a lot of social value from doing that. And that's where a really good measurement and evaluation um, comes into the picture. So perhaps it'd be good to try and take it from the perspective of an actual individual firm, perhaps in a fragile state. What does it look like for them? So let me tell you about a company called Babangona. Um, Babangona is in northern Nigeria, pretty difficult place to do business, um, and they provide end-to-end services for smallholder farmers, and meaning at the beginning of planting season, they give in-kind loans to farmers for seeds and fertilizer and access to tractors to till their land that they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford. During the growing season, they provide agricultural extension services to households. And at harvest time, the company wholesales the products on behalf of the farmer so that they get the best price at the best time for their products. Then the company takes their cut and gives the rest back of the money earned back to the farmers that are their clients. Bob and Goda provides credit throughout the harvest season. They have big working capital needs. And they also, so they need debt finance to be able to grow this business. And they believe that for the farmers who are their clients, and they have some data to back this up, their incomes increase substantially by something like 25 or 35% by being as part of their program. So the founder of Bob and Co, a nice guy called Kola Masha, and he's got a vision of not just a profitable business, but improving the livelihoods of these farmers is core to what his mission is. But he has a hard time borrowing in Nigeria and the Nigerian capital markets. The cost of capital in Nigeria is something like 25 or 35 percent to get a loan that he would need to do his business. So he came to GIF and we started to talk about giving a loan to Baba Gona. He also actually was talking to CDC that's the development finance institution we were talking about before and OPEC in the US. Many of the lenders who were willing to lend money, in theory, to Bob and Gona wanted their debt to be denominated in dollars. So they didn't want to assume any of the currency risk associated with the Nigerian currency, which is called the Naira, devaluing as compared to the U.S. dollar. Cola faced a real conundrum there because everybody, in fact, expected and expects for a significant devaluation to happen. So if he has to not only repay the debt in you know, nominal terms, but he also has to cover that the cost of that devaluation, he's priced out of this traditional financing market. So what GIF was able to do is say, we will give you debt denominated in your local currency. We will assume the currency risk for the loan that we give to you, but we'll coordinate that with some other dollar-denominated debt coming in at the same time. That meant he was able to assemble a package of financing for his company that he otherwise would not have been able to do. Don't products exist to hedge currency risk all the time that, that companies can use? They do, but not the early stage companies. And that's not a well-developed market in a place like Nigeria. So that's a great uh, question there. And it's important to note that northern Nigeria is facing one of the worst humanitarian crises globally right now. There's uh, large amounts of violence, uh, food insecurities. It's one of the areas in the northern Sahel where Boko Haram um, pillages. And so it's not necessarily a place where you'd presume that small firms would uh, actually be able to access new types of financial instruments very easily. Yeah, so if Bob and Gona can succeed, you know, it can maybe help to put a small dent in some of the structural challenges that do um, create some of the root causes for that long simmering conflict in, in that area. So if you take that example, you said earlier that you're trying to calculate both the financial return of your investments, but also the social return. I mean, two questions here. One, what, what do you actually mean by social return? How do you even define it? I'm sure you spent a long time figuring that out. But also, what do you expect from your investments in terms of the financial rate and the social rate? And how do you even calculate those uh, estimates? Yeah. And, and to landscape this even just kind of a bit more, when you're thinking about this from a normal or traditional uh, grants-based kind of aid perspective, you would just be thinking about social return. You want your aid to do well. Um, and so you're looking for impact. So it's really capturing solely that side. But curious to, again, here, yeah, 
do you think about it differently? And then how does it compare to the financial returns? Yeah. So let's stick with the Bob and Kona example. So in that case, if everything goes totally according to plan and Bob and Kona is an amazing success, we think that GIF will make a negative 8% return, precisely because we were willing to assume that currency risk. So other investors they will make positive financial rates of return there. It's a great example of beginning to fill in this space in between zero return, that's our traditional grants-based financing, and commercial rates of return. That's what you know, normal investors, what normal investors, or traditional investors are looking for. So negative 8%. Is that a big number, a small number, a good number, a bad number? Yeah, it depends on the social rate of return on investment. So what does that mean? That means what's the social value generated by Bob and Gona? And in that case, that mostly has to do with the increases in incomes that those farmers experience. That's what we see as the social value. So you can begin to think about calculating for the, every dollar we invest or other people invest, how much increase in income do people, poor people, experience as a result of that. And you can calculate a return on investment just like you do if you were doing a financial model. And that feels pretty clear for something like an intervention where you're increasing farmers' incomes. What about your interventions in health or education? Yeah. Do you yeah. place a monetary value on that? Let me give you another example that where we can sort of use it to, to think about that. GIF made another debt investment in a company called Safe Boda, who work in Uganda. And what Safe Boda does is they run sort of an Uber-like motorcycle taxi business, but their drivers wear helmets and have safety training, and they offer helmets to passengers. Motorcycle taxis are ubiquitous. You see them everywhere in cities in East Africa in particular, although in many countries, but often neither drivers nor passengers wear helmets. And in Kampala, it's an enormous amount of the surgery budget and is spent on treating head wounds from traffic accidents. So when we're thinking about investing in Safe Boda, what we spent a lot of time doing was thinking about what's the potential for avoiding those head injuries and what is the potential then in terms of both lives saved and surgery budgets saved that could then be deployed on other things? So if you want to then, if you think about avoided injury, you can begin to think about that's the social value that's being generated. And economists like to turn that into dollars because they think everything can be turned into dollars. So you can use sort of well-developed models to say this is the monetary value associated with avoiding injury, avoiding death, avoiding hospital expenditures. And then you can use that to say, okay, so that's my social return on investment. And that's why we decided in that case to invest in Safe Boda. That's really interesting. And I, I want to just pull out on the Safe Boda example, because I think it gets at you know the broader framework of how we're thinking about private investing in firms versus aid and state institutions more broadly. So one of the interesting things about Safe Boda is that it actually speaks to one of the biggest problems in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I was looking at this beforehand, and uh, road accidents are the third largest killer in Sub-Saharan Africa, which I think would is, is pretty mind-boggling to most people if they were to come up with a list of this. And um, in Kampala itself, there's 80,000 motorbike drivers, and only 1% of them wear helmets, which I think is the, one of the cases for making these types of investments. Alternatively, in next door Rwanda, they had kind of a similar market um, where motorcycle taxis are dominant and faced a similar problem. And so in 2003, uh, Rwanda instituted a policy requiring people to wear helmets. Um, and the World Health Organization did an assessment of that policy shift, and it suggested that there was about a 30% reduction in death, at least, as a result of motorcycles. And one of the things that I think this does is, is paint a picture of two very different approaches towards solving a problem. With Safe Boda, you're investing in a firm that's trying to generate a public good. In the Rwandan example, you're actually changing policy to do so. And so how do you think about what levers we should be pulling on and where should, where should we should be focusing our efforts? Yeah. 
And at the bottom of these things, in this example, sticking with this, is this tricky challenge of changing norms and changing behavior. And we can do that from a bottom-up or a top-down um, solution. And sometimes we need both of those. I'll give you a, another example, which is... Um, I, I just, just yeah. to sort of follow up on that, I mean, oh, yeah. in some ways, I think you can make the strong argument that by building the bottom-up pressure by lots of people adopting helmets, that suddenly makes it more legitimate for government to come in and say, let's legislate. Whereas if you've got no momentum on the bottom, it's harder for government to try and change behaviour entirely. Well, and it depends on the capacity of the state to enforce rules and regulations. And sometimes you can have an interesting public-private partnership to achieve this stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have heard of this program called Zusha. In, I think it began in Kenya. I think it may have spread to Uganda. So in addition to motorcycle taxis, there are minibuses that are used for public transportation in East Africa. And it's another huge source of um, road safety incidences. People die in crashes of overcrowded uh, minibuses speeding along rural roads in particular. The Zusha program puts stickers in minibuses that says, remind your driver to slow down. Tell your driver to drive safely. And the scientists who came up with this, their behavior change specialists, they did an experiment to see if just putting those stickers up encouraged people to speak up to their drivers. And in fact, it really did. Just that very soft nudge encouraged people to speak up and reduced road um, speeding by drivers of those minibus taxis. Well, now that program is being scaled up in Kenya by insurance companies who insure those motorcycle taxis. And so it's an interesting there uh, public-private partnership that the regulators are encouraging the insurers to do this. The insurers see the possibility of saving money and the actual people are involved in this. So I think you need kind of a mix of all of these things, some public provision of rules, some yeah, private sector people who have incentives to change behavior, and then all of individuals who yeah, shift their own norms and expectations over time, Ravi, as you say, in ways that it's, it's hard to predict. But from a public policy perspective, it's nice to have several levers, I'd say. I think two other problems that you see in typical investments are one, impatience. So people want their money back pretty quickly, when often it might take 10 or 20 years for things to emerge. And the early adopter phase often involves a very gradual uh, adoption. And the second thing is that the value is often not captured by the firm that generates the innovation. You can't patent it and therefore other people just copy it uh, and potentially capture the benefits. How do you sort of think about that when you're making your investments? Because in some ways it will lower the financial rate of return, but also in some ways it, it makes the social rate of return even more strong. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is really quite a complicated set of issues to grapple with. And it goes to the heart of explaining why so far we've tended to you know, concentrate our capital at the two ends of the spectrum, zero rate of return, commercial rate of return. Firms who are in the middle generating social value, generating value that they can't capture themselves, which economists would call externalities, you know, that's hard to price and hard to fund. And so we oftentimes don't do it. From GIF's perspective, there's a couple of things that we focus on. One is being patient and selling ourselves and presenting ourselves as a patient partner. And one of the reasons that we can do that is because we're actually set up as a nonprofit ourselves. So we are, a, in financial lingo, kind of a, an evergreen vehicle. We aren't, and this is getting into some jargon, a closed-end fund where we've told our partners, in seven years, don't worry, you get all your money back and you get your return. If a traditional hedge fund or private fund is oftentimes set up like that, and so that drives the investors to want to get returns really quickly. So probably, I would say, we need more evergreen vehicles um, like GIF to allow the 
limited partners, that's the investors, to be patient. So just to ask a clarifying question there, uh, concretely, when you say you're evergreen, what does that actually mean in terms of either the patience or the expectations if you're comparing it to maybe a seven-year time horizon on the commercial side, as you noted? Yeah. So we're not structured so that, yeah, in seven years, the investors in GIF can get their money back and their return. That's how a traditional hedge fund is set up like that. Um, so when I say we're evergreen, I mean we are a institution that doesn't have a fixed end date when we've told everybody, yes, you'll get your money back. And so that's what allows us, because our investors are patient with GIF, we can be patient then with Babangona or Safe Boda or the other companies that, that we work with. So this is actually interesting, and it gets at the unique structuring of GIF. So we were kind of at the beginning comparing GIF to some of the traditional donors and it being somewhat different to the USAIDs, to the DFIDs. But GIF is in part uh, funded by uh, USAID, DFID, a number of other traditional donors. Yet you're able to both use a different type of financial instrument, have a different type of patience, risk capital or risk tolerance. Um, and other characteristics. What's the translation function that happens that <laughs> like gets you from a source with those issues to them sourcing you but not having those issues? Translation function is asking for the laundering money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, how do you launder your money? Yeah, please tell us that too. So no money laundering is occurring at GIF. <laughs> let me be clear. Um, so yeah, that's it. You've hit on one of the things that does make the Global Innovation Fund unique, which is we are backed by aid money, traditional aid money from USAID, DFID, the governments of Sweden and Australia. Um, and yes, we act and deploy that money in a venture capital style way. And take risk and engage with the private sector in ways that would be difficult for those agencies to do themselves. And so one of the ways I sometimes describe GIF is as a bridge between traditional grant finance and the venture philanthropy and impact investing world. And those two places are pretty different. They have different politics and different vocabulary and different stakeholders. And so we can act as a bit of a bridge in between them. Of course, it's very important because we are spending taxpayer money that we're held to very high standards. So we do report on the social return on investment to the governments who back us. We have standards around environmental, social, and governance considerations when we make investments that are similar to what um, governments would have. So we are a hybrid in some sense. So You've got the same kind of uh, standards that you're reporting to as what you would see from these funders, but for some reason you also have a little bit more room to maybe think about the longer term that they wouldn't have. So how, like, how is that specific problem solved, right? Why are the, all of us in the humanitarian sector who are doing our two-year grants yeah. um, and reporting over and over again in a different position if you're similarly reporting on those um, to those same donors but through a with a different type of capital? Well, think about it in this way for GIF. We're investing in R&D and experimentation and trying things out. And so if you asked me how many lives were saved last year by the resources that GIF deployed, that would be a relatively small number. What GIF is trying to do is invest in the safe bodas of the world, the babangonas, in hopes of payoff 10 years from now as those things scale up. So what we do is we report on 10 years from now, if the things that GIF invests in are successful, how, many, how much welfare will poor people gain as a result of that? And so we work very hard with our partners to say to the governments who fund us to say, we want to report to you on potential impacts 10 years from now. And let's focus on the potential of this portfolio not the benefits that are experienced right now. But yes, as you said, that's unusual. That's not the common reporting framework that government partners want to have. They, are, they need themselves, for political reasons, to be able to say, what are the benefits people are experiencing today as a result of the resources we're deploying? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a second with Alex Wani. 
If you're thinking about saving money this summer, why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances? Refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream is an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with AutoPay, which is lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% with APR. You could get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. So say goodbye to high interest rate credit cards this summer and start saving with Lightstream. Displaced listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash box. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Vox. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. Hello, I'm Ezra Klein, host of The Ezra Klein Show, and I would love if you checked it out. It is a weekly conversation with the people shaping our world, our politics, our culture, people like ta Coates, Hillary Clinton, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jaron Lanier. These are conversations you won't hear anywhere else, conversations at the intersection of, of technology, of culture, of politics, of governance, and that are hopefully getting at the ideas that are changing our society. So I'd love if you would give the podcast a try. You can find The Ezra Klein Show wherever you get your podcasts. So I know you were very, very careful not to bite the hand that feeds you earlier on by explaining why aid itself is so important for humanitarian spending and, uh, and other challenges. Are you going to ask her to do that? But I'm now going to ask you to say, no, it's more from a, let, let's, let's play out a thought experiment because your, uh, your team and you are very, very analytical and think about projected benefits in an incredibly sophisticated way. Um, if you transferred a substantial proportion of aid because GIF is an innovation in a way, it's a small amount of funding, and your hope, I'm sure, is to grow the whole market and, and set of players in this space. If you transferred you know, a quarter of aid spending to the space you're operating in, what kind of multiple of benefits and outcomes could you get compared to traditional aid spending? And I know it's not like for like, because there are different problems, need different types of financial solution, but try and go with me on this. <laughs> <laughs> um. I do think that as the world in which we live changes, the way that we finance and fund development needs to evolve as well. I'm sure you guys have talked about in other episodes of this podcast, you know, the enormous improvements in the lives of millions of people that has been, have been experienced over the past 50 years. You know, so many people in China and in India especially have moved out of poverty and are part of this emerging middle class. And that means more and more of the very poor people, so people who still live under $5 a day, under $2 a day, those people either live in fragile places, places that have experienced conflict, um, or humanitarian disasters, the kind of things that the IRC is, you know, works on, or they actually live in what we call middle-income countries, um, which means that there's more local state capacity, there's more potential for local redistribution than there used to be, and so the world is changing. And we have to figure out new solutions. If we do want the people who still live desperately poor lives to have the opportunity to move into the middle class, we're going to have to think about things differently. Um, and so that's at the heart of the case for innovation and experimentation and trying things out. And so that is the case for having something like the Global Innovation Fund, which provides the opportunity to do that kind of experimentation. And then hopefully things that GIF or other folks who can fund innovation, if we identify and help de-risk things that hold promise, those things can scale through local government in particular, as well as through our other relatively large aid programs. I mean, remember, foreign aid is a relatively small amount of the money that's flowing to international development. It's dwarfed by foreign direct investment, mm -hmm. by 
domestic resource mobilization, which is jargon for local taxes, um, and even by remittances. So the foreign aid is less important. We need as a just a total amount of money. So we better figure out how to deploy that as smartly as we can. I mean, even in fragile states, I think 32% of foreign flows of resources come from aid, but 42% comes from remittances. So it's a huge potential issue we need to capture. Can I just come back to this question though about your finance compared to other sources of finance? Because I know one of the questions that you'll probably be thinking about quite hard is whether you're crowding out other institutions from investing in things, particularly the private sector. And I'm sure your answer is going to be that you crowd things in and that you actually have a nice blend. Can you tell us a story about how you're crowding in um, investment and, and hopefully multiplying the impact of what you're doing? And by, and by crowding out, I think what you mean, Ravi, is that by making an investment with this kind of capital that can take fewer returns, you're actually then substituting away from funding that would have come in without it, right? So you're kind of actually pushing it out in a negative way. Yeah, let me give you an interesting example. We provided a grant to a company in India that's called Education Initiatives. And so note what we did there. It's a grant to a private company. And Education Initiatives has a product that's called MindSpark that's for sale in India and mostly marketed to the middle class. And what it is, is it's a precision learning software for computers or tablets, sort of like Khan Academy, but even more targeted towards the particular child and their particular needs and whatever particular problems that they are struggling with for math and for Hindi. There's been rigorous randomized control trials that show that access to the MindSpark program and use of the MindSpark program can really increase learning outcomes. But this is a company. They're marketing it to the middle class. They have not begun to think about how to engage with government and maybe have this available in government classrooms. And part of the reason they haven't done that is because they're very wary about whether governments will procure the product at a price that allows them to recover the costs of their own research and development, their R&D. What GIF has agreed to do is help education initiatives figure out the pedagogy of the use of this tool in government classrooms, you know, how to help teachers use this product, how to help them not get the most out of it for kids in, in government schools. And we've also partnered with the government of Rajasthan to figure out how to procure this product and commit to a price that would make it interesting for education initiatives or other ed tech companies. So in that case, our path to scale for this ultimately is definitely through government. It will be the government of the state of Rajasthan or other states in India who will need to procure this product. What we're doing is de-risking this tricky early stage while they figure out how should the tool be used and how should it be purchased by the government. And so that's an interesting example of how to think about okay, I understand why this subsidy is reasonable now to cover a risk that it's really hard to insure against. But we definitely shouldn't do that over the longer term because this is something that the government should really pay for. You could, I think, make the case that you'd actually want to make an investment in this company for them to do the exact same thing, um, take a part of their equity, and uh, when it actually goes to scale, you'll be able to then generate the return. So can you take us through your thinking on why you decided to make a grant in that case? You're absolutely right. That in some ways, it would have been great to say we have a joint venture for scaling this up and GIF shares in the upside. And, you know, every deal is different. Um, it depends on where the company is in their journey, what is the path to scale, what is the risk that we're trying to help mitigate. And in this particular case, the thing that needs needed to be financed is this kind of a public good. This learning lab, figuring out the pedagogy for this ed tech, that's something that w the outputs of that will be a benefit not just for education initiatives, for, but for the larger ed tech sector in India. And so in that case, we felt that helped us get comfort with grants-based financing to generate something that is very much a public good. There's lots of externalities of the kind that Ravi was talking about before. Take, going back to Safe Boda, 
there we made a debt investment. There wasn't a clear public good that was being generated as part of the business plan for scale up. And so that wasn't the right thing for that company at that place in its journey. And so you have to really think this through. What does the company need? What's the problem or the gap that we're solving? And then meet the company and the problem where they are. And presumably, one of the blockages to, take, to doing equity investments is that those companies don't want to give away equity. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, then investors just walk away, but then the actual company doesn't pivot their work towards things that we think are socially useful. But I do think it's a fascinating question about whether, I'm sure many funders, donors, governments wrestle with this question about can you give grant funding to a private company to make money? It must sit uncomfortably for many, but I think your steer is yes, if you can rigorously prove the, the social impact. And you have a clear story of why that's the right financial tool to, to use. Yes, uh, that, that's right. So let me um, ask a, you a question that I grapple with, and I'm also keen to know what you think on this, Robbie. I think one of the debates that was pretty fierce over the past 10 years in development is whether you need to make people pay for things that are good for them in order to use them. And this debate was something that was particularly salient in in. Uh, anti-malarial bed nets. Yeah. There was a, a side of the crowd that said, if you want to get people to use bed nets, you have to like have them actually pay for some of it. You have to like have them put their skin in the game. And then there was another side that said, like, that's extremely silly. These are extremely poor people. We want them to, you know, not suffer from malaria. Why are we going to charge them at all and put up any uh, barriers? And then there was a series of studies that was essentially used to empirically adjudicate between these two arguments. And and the insight that came out was that you actually don't have to make people pay for them to get people to adopt them and to reduce malaria. Malaria. The optimal strategy is actually giving them away for free. What are the lessons that you take away from this when you are thinking about the way that GIF invests and the fact that most of these investments are actually things that require people to pay money at the end of the day? And, and isn't the sort of boring answer that this has to be taken on a case-by-case -case empirical basis, <laughs> or can you sort of generalize enough from yeah. the studies that are out there? I think it's kind of a general result, actually, that there's pretty low willingness to pay for preventative health products, whether that's malarial bed nets, chlorine for your drinking water, deworming medication. You know, we've got a series of these, even vaccines to mm -hmm. for kids, in which... Willingness to pay is very low. And why is that? I think that some of it has to do with it's very difficult to separate signal from noise. So, you know, think about uh, a technology that can reduce your child's diarrhea by 30%, which biomedically that's a huge number. So that maybe means your kid goes from three really acute Light, potentially life-threatening episodes of diarrhea in a year to two episodes. You're a busy mother with three kids and a lot of work to do, four kids and a lot of work to do. Do you notice going from three to two? Maybe not, even though biomedically that's really significant. Plus, your child may still be sadly and unfortunately unhealthy on other dimensions. They may still have upper respiratory illnesses, they may still get malaria, you know, you've made from a medical perspective a big advance, from just the regular mom's perspective, it might be really hard to notice that. And so then it's really hard to decide how much to pay for that water treatment product or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's just human nature. It's hard to separate signal from noise. And in developed countries, we solve for that by chlorinating the drinking water that comes out of our taps. Like, we don't have to decide, oh, geez, how much do I want to pay for chlorine to put in my water at home? And from a public health perspective, we remove the need to make those kinds of tricky decisions. And, you know, the more that we can identify innovations that also remove and reduce that cognitive burden for people, the better. Like, those are exciting innovations, the ones that make it so you don't have to make choices. <laughs> you don't have to introspect and decide how much you value something. We remove that cognitive burden from people. Those are things that are really exciting. So with bed nets, yeah, once we've kind of figured out 
every pregnant woman who goes to the clinic, she gets a free bed net. We just remove the burden of deciding, should I buy one? Should I get one? Should I even go get a free one? You know, those are great interventions. And, you know, we've really reduced uh, the burden of malaria as a result of this getting through this debate and removing that choice. And so how do you then apply that thinking to when you're making investments? Are, I mean, are there times when you're like, actually, we should just pay these companies to reduce their prices oh, so that yeah. then people get them for free? Yeah. So look, EdTech's a great example of where this one's complicated. It kind of goes the other way. Sometimes people are willing to have willingness to pay for products that don't actually work. Again, this is human nature. You want yeah, your kids to do well at right school. Now, yes. <laughs> you want your kids to do well at school. Something's marketed to you really well. You're like, I will get that. And you, we don't even, maybe it's not even particularly effective. So that's, yeah, so that's where sometimes the market fails us in, in, in other ways. So from an investment perspective, this comes back to the externalities point that, that Ravi mentioned earlier before. Sometimes you want to think about what's the right way to provide this product? Do we really need markets to provide this? Is the right path to scale really through the public sector and some kind of free provision? And so with the education initiatives example, that's precisely where basically what we're helping them to do is to figure out how this can be procured by government at prices that government is willing to pay and then be provided for free to those kids in those schools. But I think we sometimes confuse two things here. One is whether we think choice is a good thing for driving up standards and, and improving the quality of providers versus whether we think choice is a good thing because we should value choice for the individual. And if I take something like education, I can imagine it being underprovided if you just allow people to, to buy it on their own. But equally, I don't want to just give uh, grants to individual companies because actually I want to engineer some competition. So that's where you get into uh, ideas like vouchers mm -hmm. and, and, and funding the consumer, but still preserving competition and choice. And is that something that you think about in, in your investments? So we do think about that. And this is a really interesting area in general for public health products and for other products that um, have... Um, important externalities that go with them. And there's sort of, there's two kinds of errors that you're balancing here. You're balancing sort of errors of inclusion and errors of exclusion. So if we did want to provide something for free to people who can't afford it, what you want to be able to do is target exactly that group of people. But, but targeting is pretty hard to do. So we either exclude people we didn't want to exclude or we include people who we didn't want to include when you're struggling with how to get this right. So one thing that we're interested in is low-cost ways to get people to self-identify as, as I should be included in this group. And so if you can figure out easy ways to identify the poor, easy ways to identify people who have high need, those are really interesting innovations. And sometimes it's by, yeah, getting people to walk to get a voucher. That's Walking somewhere is a cost, but it's not a huge cost to people, but only people who really need a voucher, for example, would walk to get one. So that's the kind, we're interested in that sort of thing. That's a general result with sometimes how you identify how to give subsidies to people. Alex, you're in a great position to look across incredible innovations across the world. And I'm wondering if there's one or two ideas that you think have the greatest potential to change the lives of refugees in particular, or people displaced by conflict. Uh, what would you point to? Well, one thing we haven't talked about is cash, cash transfers. I know the IRC has been a real leader in making the case for not giving people physical goods and predicting what their needs are, but rather empowering them to be part of a local economy and to make the choices that are best for them by giving them cash. And I think we are... We're excited about that um, and the potential for that um, in those kinds of settings. I also would highlight some of the education technology advances like MindSpark, but not only that advance, that you know, we need new solutions to ensure that displaced people and refugees are able to advance in their education and um, uh, that those kids don't experience another dimension of loss in terms of their potential in the education space in addition to all the other um, difficulties that they experience by being displaced. So uh, we got 
pretty wonky and finance oriented. <laughs> and in this kind of final question, I just want to zoom out and from somebody who has worked both in traditional philanthropy, which is I think what most audience members are familiar with, and then working in this new space, what is I think your biggest lesson and takeaway about the different ways that this kind of financing operates. Um, and then also kind of coupled with that, what, what's your recommendation for, you know, one or two things people should read to, to kind of understand some of the sea change that's happening right now? Hmm. I'm a pretty much for people's individual philanthropy. I'm pretty much a big believer in the effective altruism approach to thinking about how to do orient your own giving. Try to achieve the most good that you can with the contribution that you're making. And so that generally ends up orienting your philanthropy towards developing countries um, and towards basic uh, programs that improve the lives of the very poor. Um, so bed nets, deworming, water treatment, um, vitamin A, you know, these sound unsexy and unglamorous, but they are a big bang for your buck for your personal philanthropy. Vitamin A, unsexy? What are you talking about? <laughs> so, yeah, so I would actually, if people are interested in that, encourage you to read more about the effective altruism movement, and I will flag the givewell.org um, as an organization that helps provide really interesting information about that. At the bigger level of philanthropy, um, you know, at a, at a sort of larger scale, I do think that kind of filter of do the most good that you can remains really important. But you also have the opportunity to think about being catalytic, funding things that it's hard for others to fund, taking chances, taking risks. And so those are really important filters for the philanthropy of, uh, you know, at foundations and places like like that, not just um, individuals. In terms of things to read, you know, one thing I actually really encourage people to do is to read fiction about developing countries. You know, read A House for Mr. Biswas by V.S. Nepal, or read um, Moth Smoke by, I think his name is Moshan Hamid in, in Pakistan, or read... Um, Nonfiction, but about the lives of poor people. Read Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo. And remember that these are people just like <laughs> we're all the same with lives and loves and losses and petty jealousies and um, uh, rich interior narration. We're not just, you know, the outside presentation that we have. Alex Oane, thank you so much for being on Displaced. Thank you. So if you want to continue the discussion, please do tweet Grant, not me, on Twitter. Um, and I, well, let's be honest. I'm you don't not want gonna, their tweets too, Robbie. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you, you just don't use Twitter effectively. Enough. I still have my quill and my, you know, my my desk. So no, if you if you do want to actually engage in this, tweet at, uh, at Grant, but also me and Alex. I know she would be happy to hear from you. And importantly, use the hashtag DisplacedPodcast. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also love to hear from you by email. So drop us a note at displacedatrescue.org. And if you like what you hear, do subscribe on any podcast platform that you listen to, whether that's Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. A huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, particularly Alex Bandea, Ben Moskovitz, and Catherine Long. And at Vox Media, our production team is associate producer Jelani Carter, our senior producer Golda Arthur, who no matter how many times she wants us to keep these closings short and sweet, we are determined to make them as long and excruciatingly painful for her as we can. So thank you to her. And thank you to Nishat Kurwa, our executive producer of audio at Vox Media. And this week, a special thanks to Jay McComb at Maple Street Creative Studios in London and to Agranesh Ashagre. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.